If you've got a Bible, we're in Exodus 12 tonight. We looked at the first six verses last week. We're going to read the verse 14 to open up tonight. Um, uh, we talked about the Passover lamb last week. Uh, we won't spend much time on that tonight. We'll talk about uh, the Passover ceremony, what it meant and what it continues to mean, um, and uh, uh, the process that the Jews went through and how this leads them to what they've been waiting for for so, so long, the Exodus um, from Egypt. So, Exodus 12, verse number 1 through 14, the Word of God says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to him uh, take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in the fire, its head with the legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire." And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord." Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. The Word of God is good, and this text particularly has a lot of good in store for us tonight. So again, last time we talked about the Passover lamb, um, how it was a means of salvation for the nation of Israel all those years ago, and how it's a picture of the salvation that we can all receive in Christ. And, and we talked about the progression of the text, um, how we're told about a lamb, then the lamb, and then it becomes our lamb, right? And you can notice that from verses number two down through verse number five. But the emphasis is that this is not just a way, but it's the way. It's God's way. It's the Bible's plan of salvation. And there's only one option. There is no other way. And you can see how it goes from being a to the to your as in it's personal, right? And we looked at that verse to close last week where the Apostle Peter, before a group of skeptical and scornful um, politicians and leaders, Peter says in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, speaking of Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must 
be saved. So as we talked last time, the Passover lamb, a picture of the exclusive way of salvation that is found only in Christ through the person and the work of Jesus. And Peter says there is no other name, there is no other way whereby we must be. So not only is Jesus the exclusive way, but he has to be a personal way. As in, we must be saved, experience it ourselves, receive it on our own, for ourselves, under our own will. You know, there are dozens of other verses and passages that make it clear that salvation is exclusively provided in Christ. Salvation must be personally experienced through Christ. So you, you see the two pillars there that salvation is only found in Jesus. There is no other source of salvation, but not only is it provided for in Christ, it's not something that we experience passively. It's not something that we, um, you know, that we are a part of without actually having a role in accepting, receiving, taking, obtaining through trust. Salvation must be personally experienced, personally received, as in a conscious choice that we make responding to God's pursuit of us. Uh, To put it simply, we must say yes to Jesus in his finished work. If you want to bottle down salvation uh, to a sentence, if someone says, what is salvation and how do I get it or how do I obtain it? Um, I think maybe the simplest way to explain that to anybody is that you must say yes to Jesus as in he is God's son. He is the word of God incarnate. He is God made flesh. He is the perfect spotless son of God who came and lived a life that you'll never live and died a death that we should have died. But in that death, he atoned for our sin and he was buried and he did not stay dead though. He rose back to life as in nobody else could ever do that, right? But on his own power, he got out of the grave successfully accomplishing salvation from sin and from death. So Jesus is the only way. And to be saved, you've got to say, yes, Jesus, you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. I might not have all of it figured out. And I might still have some questions, but I'm going to say yes to you because I agree, I believe, I trust. You are who you say you are. And your work is finished as in I bring nothing to the table. I have nothing to do with this other than saying yes. We must say yes to Jesus and to His finished work. I, I don't go into, I don't analyze people, their traditions, their styles, their preferences, all this other stuff. When I talk about salvation to people, I say, hey, listen, I got, I got to ask you a simple question. Have you said yes to Jesus and have you said yes to His finished work? I don't really care about the rest of the stuff. Other people might want to care about those things and might want to say you're in or you're out based on those things. But based on the Bible and the way the Word of God judges people and God judges people, it's based on a simple question. Have you said yes? yes to Jesus. Saying yes is agreeing, believing, trusting, submitting to who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and where Jesus is. As in when he rose back to life, he ascended to a throne in heaven. So he is not just some meek and mild Savior who came and lived and now has disappeared into the ether. He is a mighty king who rose to a throne above all thrones. He ascended to the highest of heavens and he sits on a throne where he rules every kingdom, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is 
King of Kings. So when we talk about saying yes to Jesus, it's not just what He did, it's not just who He is, but it's where He is. And it's where we are as Christians, are headed and where the whole world is headed. And of course, the Exodus has been a story about God revealing Himself to the nation of Israel and to the nation of Egypt. God revealing Himself to them, God showing Himself to them, but also God saying, hey, I'm taking y'all somewhere. Exodus means you're exiting one place, going to another. I'm taking y'all somewhere. Y'all don't know where I'm going, but man, it's going to be good. And can't, I can't wait for you to see it, but I just need y'all to understand. I'm taking you somewhere. And Pharaoh said, no, you're not going anywhere. And the enemy wants to say, this is all you got. This is the best it's ever going to get. You better like it or you better you know, get over it because it's not going to get any better. You're going to do as I tell you and you're going to deal with what I, de- I deal you. But God says, I've got a better place. And we're headed there. Hopefully, you're excited about it. Um, And of course, if you trust in God, why wouldn't you be excited about it? But I digress. The first Passover night was a precursor to what Jesus did, not just in the death of the Lamb, but also in what comes after that death of the Lamb and how that applies to not just God's people, but also the people that did not believe and had not trusted in God. Uh, So tonight, we're going to talk about how God was glorified through this night and and how it impacted Egypt um, and the whole world, honestly. Um, And really, the energy and the impact of this event as a whole uh, pertaining to the original audience, but also pertaining to us, is so big. So um, I'm excited to do this tonight. The first verse I want to pay attention to, um, again, we looked at verses 1 through 6 last time, so we're going to start at verse 7. First verse I want to pay attention to is verse 7, where the blood is to be applied to the doorpost. You'll see there it says that they are to take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost, on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now, my first exposure to this was an episode of Rugrats. Y'all remember that cartoon? Maybe uh, you let your kids watch it, maybe not. But the Rugrats was uh, a Jewish, they, one of the uh, the little, little baby's uh, grandparents were Jewish, um, so they always had these holiday episodes. They weren't really Christian, but they were Jewish, so you know there was some overlap there. Um, there was also a Hanukkah episode that I learned a lot from. But anyway, um, I remember them uh, taking, uh, the, they didn't show the lamb being killed, because how could they do that on Nickelodeon, right? But they took some red paint um, because that's a good way to explain it and they went and they brushed it on the doorpost and I thought that's really you know neat is it that simple was it just the red blood or the red paint in the way that I understood it as a child is that really enough to save the people in the house and of course the story goes that the blood of the lamb is what saved the people now let me make it very clear the blood of the lamb saved them when the lamb was killed Uh, The sacrifice of the lamb is what brought salvation. The salvation was not dependent on um, whether or not it was on, whether or not, you know, it was visible. Um, The salvation was accomplished. Israel was saved when the lambs were killed. But the application of the blood was important for two different reasons. And I'll get into that. But there's, there's a twofold purpose in the blood being applied to the doorpost. And, and, And those two things are this. It was to remind the home and show the world. That God didn't, you know, that the, 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 there was no magic done when they applied the blood to the pieces of wood. It was the death of the lamb that did that. But there was, a, there was two very important reasons as to why the blood was to be applied and why God said, hey, you should apply this blood on the doorpost. It's not like the death angel would have came by and said, I don't know if these people had, you know, sacrificed the lamb. It was to remind the home and it was to show 
the world. The blood on the doorpost was a constant reminder to those in the home that their safety, their salvation, their security rested solely in the sacrificed life of another. So for those few days, as they would walk in and out of their house, they would know we are only safe because somebody died to save us. They would walk under those doorposts. They would walk by those doorposts. Anybody walking by would see their doorposts. This is a reminder that we are only saved because something had to die for us. Listen, you may know this, or maybe you've forgotten because it's easy to forget. We forget things. It's easy to forget that you forget things, right? We forget things easily, don't we? We drift. And I don't want to, I'm not picking on you, right? But we drift. We forget. We quickly and subtly forget things. They are constant reminders. There are constant reminders in the Bible of what God has done and what God can do. You ever wonder why? You ever wonder why there's so many, so many times that you just read the same thing over and over and over again? You ever wonder why you hear the same sermon over and over and over again? That might be because you have a preacher problem. But the Word, right, repeats itself. God repeats Himself. And you know why? Because we forget. So often, so easily, so quickly, so subtly, so naturally... And the end of our passage there in verse 14 even alludes to this. This was put in, uh, into, into uh, existence to be a memorial to remind them of what God has done and what God alone can do. And this is a theme you'll find throughout the Old Testament on to the New Testament. Uh, later on, when they're about to go into the promised land, um, God uh, briefs the nation. Moses preaches a sermon that lasts the whole book of Deuteronomy. Very long sermon on top of a mountain. They, they're not allowed to leave until it's over with. And it lasts days. don't know if he preached all night, but it took a long time. But this is one of the passages that get re- gets repeated throughout Deuteronomy. Take care lest you forget. Why is he saying lest you forget? Because you're likely to. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and into this land. Let me say this very slowly and very clearly. Take care lest you forget because you're probably going to... The Jews heard this. This was almost like the sermon you could expect a sermon every other week to be on this subject. You're thinking, man, is that really the case? Maybe, I don't know. They heard this from God, from the prophets, over and over and over again. And one of the Proverbs, and we don't know if Solomon wrote this one or not, probably didn't, just based on his track record, but one of the Proverbs, Proverb 30, there's a prayer in the Proverb. And, and the words of this prayer are just astounding. Proverbs 30. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, or anything of the world. Give me neither poverty nor riches, nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Take heed lest you forget when you have the full of the land and you are full and have all that you need and you say, who is the Lord? Here's a prayer from someone who understood the necessity of that kind of attitude. I don't want to have too much because I might forget. Whew! 
we don't hear that being uh, let you know we print the prayer of Jabez right and everybody buys that because everybody wants to get rich and be healthy you don't see this getting a lot of traffic do you I don't want to get rich God because I don't want anything to tempt me to forget because I know how likely I am to forget Whew. The New Testament follows this up, and, and, and basically, if you could summarize all the New Testament teachings that are kind of that take place um, after the gospel is presented in all Paul's letters, the first half of Paul's letters are all about here's how to get saved, here's what it means to be saved. But the last half of Paul's letters, most of the New Testament is all about developing habits of remembering what God alone has done, what only God can do. Think about that. Maybe write that down. Remember that. Developing habits of remembering, considering, reminding, dwelling on what God alone has done and what only God can do. Remember, remember, remember because you are likely to forget. Jesus wrote a postcard to some churches. Uh, In Revelations 2, we have a a record of these postcards, of these letters. Here's what he says to the church. Revelations 2, verse 5. Remember! Why does he say remember? Because they forgot. Yeah, they literally forgot. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. You know what that's telling me? You know what that says? Remember how you were when you first believed, when you first got saved, how excited, how focused, how devoted. You need to start doing that stuff again. Because you've forgotten, and because you've forgotten, you've fallen. And you need to reinstall, you need to relearn those habits of remembering because if you don't, you're just going to keep forgetting and you're just going to keep falling. You know what the two biggest pillars, and of course you can expect what they are because I'm a preacher and we're in church, but you know what the two biggest habits of remembering in the New Testament are? Gather and worship. Gather and worship. Gather together and worship together. Gather with one another and worship together. When you step out of your circle and realize how much larger the pool that God is working in, it's always a reminder, wow, this is more than just about me. You know why you should come to church even when you don't feel like it? I'm not talking about when you're sick, but even when you don't want to, because you need to be reminded, and if it takes getting on the pew with somebody else, that's enough to remind me, hey, it's not just about me. And when I stay in my own little corner with my own people in my own little world, I easily forget. But when I'm with somebody else, even if I don't like you, I love y'all, but even when I don't like the person to my right or to my left, I'm reminded, well, somebody's got to love them. And they think the same thing, you think the same thing about me, right? Gather together, and when we worship, it's a way to give yourself to God alongside those others He's reaching and has reached. And this is what we see. If you read Acts, you'll see this over and over again. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So what was it all about? They had habits of remembering. They gathered and they worshipped. They gathered and they worshipped. Why did they do this? Because they knew if they didn't, they'd forget. 
Acts 2 verse 46. Day by day attending the temple where they worshipped, breaking bread in their homes where they gathered, they received their food with glad, generous hearts, praising God. They gathered and worshipped. They gathered and worshipped. They gathered and worshipped. Because when we isolate ourselves from God's other children, when we devote ourselves to any other besides God, we will, we will, we will, we will forget, or maybe we've already forgotten. That's why, I'm preaching to the choir, I know, but this is something you can take back to your friends and family and maybe not so friends. That's why there are things you have to do when it comes to getting saved that you, have, that, that you don't have to do when it comes to getting saved, that you have to do as someone who is saved. Not because the law says you got to do it, because something in here says i got to do it. Gathering won't save you, and worshiping won't save you. But if you're a saved person, and you're not gathering, you're not, you're not worshiping, and you're not doing these things to remember... Reading and praying. Listen, every single morning, whether you feel like it or not, pick a Bible up. Every single morning, whether you feel like it or not, pray. Every, and I shouldn't have to say that, right? Every single day, whether you feel like it or not, turn on some worship music, right? Whether you feel like it or not, intentionally love somebody. Reach out to somebody. Because if you don't remember, you'll forget. Here's a simple, silly little proverb. If we don't remember, we will forget. Man, who gets paid to say that, right? But isn't it true? If we don't remember, well, I didn't remember because I forgot. Exactly. Because you realize the life that you have was given, that, that was given for you is too precious for you to lose sight of God's plan. But the, but the blood on the doorpost also means something else. It's about showing the world which is made known through what we just talked about, our gathering, our worshiping. It sends a message. But it's more important than just sending a message. It's about proclaiming the message. It's not enough just to let people drive by the parking lot and say, well, they're so-and-so's car, they're at church. It's not enough just to make social posts and bumper stickers to let the world know that we believe. That's not how people are convinced. People are convinced the same way you were convinced because somebody told them, right? Somebody reached out to them. And beyond that, the good you've received is just too good not to share. There's a weight to the gospel. There's a weight to salvation. It's too rich. It's too heavy to not tell the world. It's like that story in 2 Kings when you have these lepers who've been thrown out of the city. And nobody will let them in because they're lepers, right? And they run out to the camp of the Syrians that are going to invade. And the lepers are like, listen, if we just stay here, we're going to die. If we go and invade the camp of the Syrians, we might die, but we're still going to die either way. So let's go die there and at least we'll have something to eat before we die. So, the leper, so these lepers go out to the camp and then God calls the Syrians to hear some noises. So they ran away and the, Syrian, and the lepers find the camp and it's full of goods and drinks and riches and, 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 and food. So they just have a party all night long, right? And they're just thinking, man, we could go start a band or I don't know. We could do anything we want to do. And then it dawns on them. And listen, these are not religious men. They're not moral men. They're not good people at all. But when, they, when it dawns on them how good they've gotten it, In unison, they say, 
We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning, punishment will overtake us. Not because God said punishment will overtake you, but because something inside of them said we can't keep this to ourselves. It's too good. It's too rich. It's too heavy. Let us go and tell the people that cast us out. Let us go and tell them even though we don't want to, we've got to. When the disciples were told to stop preaching the name of Jesus, Peter and John on trial said, we cannot but speak what we've seen and heard. In Greek, this is a double negative, And the double negative is, to, is to, to emphasize it. We are absolutely not able not to speak. We can't not speak about what we've experienced. The nature of the gospel is to transform hearts. And it makes us bold. And if it hasn't, pray for boldness. The disciples who said that went and prayed for boldness. So God knows we need to. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. Not only, I'm not ashamed as in I'm not going to hide it I, I, because you tell me you don't want to hear it. I'm not ashamed because I know it works. And I'm going to be loud about it not because I want to aggravate you but because I want to help you. Because I know how much it's helped me. If you're not ashamed, the blood will be applied in an outward bold way. And this, is, this isn't me pressuring you but... This is the Word and the Spirit moving towards you to make you bold. If you don't believe me, just pray for God to make you bold. You know why there's something in you that says, I don't want to do that? Not because it won't work. (laughs) Because it will. And there's something in us, whenever we hear that pray for boldness prayer, we think, I don't want to do that. Oh, it won't work, Justin. I I prayed it before. No, you haven't. But, in case you have... Pray it again because it will, it will, it will work. Look at verse 11. It says, When you eat, eat with a belt on your way, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. Eat it with haste. Why? God tells them to eat with anticipation and preparation. The message here is that God's activity accompanies salvation. Salvation means that God is active in our life today, tomorrow, and forever. And that when we partake of the goodness of God, we ought to eat with anticipation and preparation because we know that God's about to do something in our life today. He wants to tomorrow. And obviously, He's going to do forever. So we must obey God today. We must be prepared to follow Him tomorrow. And we must anticipate His kingdom's coming. We don't passively believe or read or study. We anticipate what God is up to and where God is leading us and when Christ is going to return. And that's why we're prepared to serve Him today. Because we feel the urgency, we feel the obligation and the necessity to live for Him and prepare for what's next. Notice how verse 11 and 12 both end with these two declarative statements. Verse 11 ends with, it is the Lord's Passover. That's why you should eat with haste because God's Passover is going to change you and it's going to make you a new person and you're going to live with the urgency and the, the awareness that comes along with being a child of God. 
These two verses build off each other. Verse 12 is addressing non-believers. Verse 11 addresses believers. We know who God is. We know the Lord is the only God. We've experienced His Passover personally. So we ought to be living in a way that says, I'm ready for whatever God has for me today. If it's live for Him, that's it. If it's suffering for Him, I'll do it. If He's coming back today, I'm ready. But we need to live every day as in we have received the Passover and we are ready for whatever He has. Does that describe you? It doesn't describe most people. I'm sure y'all are in the category of ready, but maybe there's some days where you aren't. You know, Jesus brings new meaning to the, what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And He's not trying to scare us. It's not because there's going to be a gotcha moment, but being under the blood, being saved, being changed ought to always present us to the world among other things. But this is super important to say we are ready to serve God. We are ready to serve others. We are ready to do whatever we got to do. We are ready for eternity. The alternative is for those who aren't ready or don't ever become ready is judgment. Verse 12. For those that aren't ready, I will pass through the land of Egypt and I will strike all the firstborn, both man and beast. All the gods of Egypt I'm judging because this is about showing that I am, I am is God. Yahweh is God. Remember how this whole story started? God told Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that he will know, so that Egypt will know, so that all the world will know that I am is the only God. So why has there been plagues? Why has Moses been doing all this? Why is God doing all of this to show the world that I am is the only God? About sending a message. Egypt and Pharaoh, they're not in charge. Yahweh in heaven is in charge. And he's going to raise up a nation of slaves so that all will know that Yahweh the Most High is the only God. Remember that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had when he saw his kingdom falling apart and God giving it to somebody else? And God told him, hey, this is going to happen to every leader. Every kingdom that rises is going to have to face the, future, face the facts that they're not going to be in control forever. And, and what did the angel say to Nebuchadnezzar? You've seen this to the end that the living may know the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's why I believe the Bible's inspired because I watch the news every day. <laughs> that's been God's agenda since Exodus to get people's attention. So that when the world began to spread, that a carpenter had died and rose again in Judea, the world had context, the world had a baseline. Maybe those rumors of what Israel's God was said to be about is true. You know, verse 13 is not a small thing to say you believe in. To believe that the blood of a lamb is the only way to be saved from destruction? I mean, if that's something you really believe, that's not a small thing to say, I believe that it takes the blood of the lamb to save people. I mean, to say that you believe that, that's a big, bold statement to ascribe to, isn't it? And if it's true, 
If it's true, it's worth living with every ounce of devotion and boldness and urgency we can muster up, isn't it? I mean, if that is true, and if you know it's true, is there any amount of devotion and boldness and urgency that's too extreme? I don't think so. We won't read verse 15 through 28, but that's the preparation for the meal as it was commanded them. And there's a major emphasis in that passage that they should avoid leaven. I mean, don't get it near your house. Leaven is, is a picture of sin, and the message in that next text is that avoid leaven during this time, not because it would undo the Passover, but it could distance them from its power. The leaven wouldn't undo the lamb being killed, but it could distance them, it could distract them from the power of the lamb. Leaven's a picture of sin. Y'all know that. Passover and the Jewish festivals are all about cutting away, washing away sin. Leaven's a picture of how sin finds its way back in and bloats and swells and spoils what God has made clean. Leaven obviously gives bread its rise. And, and in the same way, sin finds its way into our lives and it grows and it grows and it grows and it takes control God sternly warns the Jews, leaven in the camp during Passover would bring isolation to anyone that's guilty to make an example, but also as a way of portraying the danger and the risk that remains with sin. Look at verse 25 though. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as He promised you shall keep this service. So they were going to continue to celebrate Passover as a reminder. But what does God say? You, when you come to the land, just as He promised. That's a good phrase to highlight or underline. God is trying to establish the best possible future for His children. We must trust that His Word is right and His way is good because if it's going to happen just like He promised, we're in good hands. That's what this story's been all about, so that we might know. What verse 13 says will come true, and does come true in this chapter. If you read verses 29 through 42, we'll read just a few of those verses, but it tells us how all this transpires historically. And of course, in our shoes, we're still living on this side of our generation seeing the promise of God be fulfilled in terms of the return of Christ. But listen to how all this transpired the night of the Passover. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, and there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among the people, both you and the children of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. <laughs> Say a prayer for me because it doesn't look good here. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead if y'all stick around. Verse, 20, verse 37. 
The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went with them, also flocks, herds, a great deal of livestock. They baked unleavened cakes of dough which they had bought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. It all happened just like God said it would the whole time. The Egyptians were judged. Israel was saved. And Moses delivered them out of the only world they knew en route to a better, faraway land. The story's not over. There's still a major roadblock. There's a scare that comes along with it. But the moral of the story, as verse 25 tells us, just as God promised, it all happened. You know, Exodus was the first major statement to the world that Yahweh alone is God. The world that was would remember and be changed by this forever. History is different because of Exodus. That's undeniable. And God's track record is impeccable. Verse 15 and 51 summarizes the whole story. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. God has proven Himself trustworthy. Question is, are you still holding trust back from Him? Is there any area of your life that you're not trusting Him in? Because this story alone should make us stop and say, okay, He kept saying it was going to happen. If we believe His plans, His way, His word, how serious are we taking them? How serious are we taking Him? Do we live in light of that daily? Do we we show the world daily? And if not, why? Are we flirting with sin still? People that are ready, trust Him. People that are ready, follow Him. People that are ready, stay away from leaven. There is a midnight cry coming in this world. There is an exodus coming for the church. Question you've got to ask yourself. Am I ready? God has given us no reasons to not trust Him, but every reason to rest in Him. His promises are good. His ways are good. He is good. So what are you going to do with all that good? Remember, show the world, but live with urgencies. Live with a I'm ready attitude. There's no other way to handle something as good as we've been given. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. I'm thankful to be able to hold this word. I'm not worthy of a story so good. Lord, our world is different. History is different because you brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt just like you said you would. 
The nation of Israel was established because you took a group of slaves, 600,000 men and their wives and their children. You took a group of slaves out of the dungeons and the mire of Egypt and you made a nation out of them and then you brought a savior from them and then you changed the world through them and you built a church through them and here we are on the other side of the world singing praises and worshiping and reading about the God who said I'm going to show Egypt I am is the only God. We can't make this up and it's so amazing that we can look back and say wow it happened just like he said it would. So God, thank you for letting us be a part of this. Help us, Father, to live with urgency and boldness. Help us to remember lest we forget. Because you are good and your way is good. We ask this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.